0: I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues, from say her name and COVID, to the war on civil rights and the global rise of fascism. This idea travelogue lifts up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements, and even their own lives in deeper, more nuanced ways.
1: We embrace the vision of Martin Luther King where children are not judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. The left is attempting to destroy that beautiful vision and divide Americans by race in the service of political power. By viewing every issue through the lens of race, they want to impose a new segregation, and we must not allow that to happen. Critical race theory, the 1619 Project, and the crusade against American history is toxic propaganda ideological poison that, if not removed, will dissolve. The civic bonds that tie us together will destroy our country. That is why I recently banned trainings in this prejudiced ideology from the federal government and banned it in the strongest manner possible.
0: That, was the 45th President of the United States, speaking in September at the White House Conference on American History. I'd like you all to imagine a world, a terrifying world, a world in which a deadly virus disproportionately kills people of color, yet efforts to address the documented race disparities in health care have been banned. A world in which an organization dedicated to fair housing cannot frame current racial wealth disparities caused by past discrimination as structural racism. A world in which another organization dedicated to Black Girls Matter and Say Her Name is precluded from using the frame of intersectionality in their training materials. Imagine a world in which colleges and universities that have produced some of the very tools that have been used to identify patterns of race and gender inequality suddenly agree that such tools cannot be used in their own institutions. A world in which hate speech is protected but anti-racist ideas are banned and labeled un-American. If this sounds like a nightmare then I urge you to wake up to our current reality the world of our nightmares has arrived. On September 22nd, 2020, the Trump administration issued Executive Order 13950. We call it the Equity Gag Order. It prohibits agencies, contractors, and grant recipients from holding diversity training or offering equity programming that discusses prohibited topics like structural racism, intersectionality, critical race theory, or implicit bias. The order directly impacts more than 2.1 million federal employees, 1.3 million service members, 4.1 million federal contractors, and an untold number of federal grantees. The very concepts that we're discussing on today's show are on a list of prohibited ideas that have been labeled as un-American. If we were a federal agency, a government contractor, or even a recipient of federal grants, this conversation would likely be prohibited. Suppose we decided to go forward with using these terms and you were offended by these ideas. Well, if you were, there's a special snitch hotline just for you to report us for discussing these topics or more specifically for affirmatively discussing these topics. We might be reprimanded, we might lose our funding, or worse still, we might even lose our jobs. And then if any of you on the other side decided that you wanted to go to court and fight for your workplace or your university to hold equity programming that is honest and inclusive, well, the government has made it clear now that they will join that lawsuit, but on the other side. The goal of Trump's equity gag order is the same as the goal of all of the witch hunts that have come before it, to strike fear in the hearts of academics, artists, historians, activists, writers, and thinkers, those who are attempting to challenge the status quo to up in generations of white and male supremacy this pattern rehearses some of the most repressive moments in our history moments that saw opposition to slavery being criminalized as sedition that saw the teaching of enslaved people to read and write being punished as a threat to the security of the nation that saw social justice advocacy branded as subversive and that saw those who demanded to exercise rights that were embedded in our own constitution being branded as un-american as anti-family or worse And we know that this has been effective. We know the Red Scare led to the Lavender Purge. We know that branding Black liberation as the greatest threat to the security of the nation led to government surveillance of social justice organizations. We know that fear of justice led to the silencing of activists, artists, and academics, even Martin Luther King. Yes, the use of our own government to silence, to punish, to threaten those who challenge the status quo has happened before. It happened in the 60s, it happened in the 50s, it happened before that, and it happened before that. When Trump told the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by, he was rightly denounced for supporting white supremacy. But when he takes up a fringe ideology that equates racial justice with anti-whiteness and gender equity with discrimination against men, when he frames the truth about slavery and genocide and destiny as lies, as child abuse, then he has put a radical defense of the worst that America has produced in the driver's seat of the federal bureaucracy. And its reach is boundless. AAPF has learned from hundreds of people, all telling stories about how this order has censored basic ideas about social justice. We've heard from a researcher whose course on structural racism and health disparities was canceled. We've heard about an elite Silicon Valley university that banned people from saying things like, systemic racism exists at this university. This order has been used to suppress discourses on race and gender equity throughout our society. It's as if the Trump people claim to have solved the problems of injustice and inequality by banning any effort to discuss it and to intervene against it. Well, of course, with a Biden-Harris victory, it's easy to believe that our work is going to be done come January 20th. But in fact, our work is far from over. First, we have to fight to repeal this equity gag order, no question about that. So we invite you to join our Truth Be Told campaign to ensure that this is repealed straight away. But before we act, we have to understand. And I couldn't have a better group of people on today's show helping us to do just that. Joining this conversation are Janae Nelson, Associate Director Counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund charles lawrence professor of law emeritus at the university of hawaii and the o g of critical race theory carol anderson professor of american studies at emory university and the author of white rage Lisa Rice, president and CEO of the National Fair Housing Alliance. Rachel Godsell, professor of law at Rutgers and the co-founder of the Perception Institute. And Laura Gomez, professor of law at UCLA Law School and author of Inventing Latinos, a new story of American racism. I began the conversation by talking to Janae Nelson about the lawsuit that LDF has filed against the Trump administration. Now, LDF is the anchor of civil rights litigation. It's the organization that brought us Brown versus Board of Education. It continues to fight against the legacies of segregation and white supremacy. So I asked Janae, how does this order specifically jeopardize or impede the important work that was begun by Brown versus Board?
2: Well, thanks so much for that question, Kim. And I just want to start by thanking you for inviting me to participate in this discussion. And I'm so glad for your partnership in bringing light, bringing black light to this issue. And I love what you and your team have created with this forum. It's a real asset to our community. So you ask what it jeopardizes. The Executive Order 13950 jeopardizes the ability of individuals and companies to contract with and potentially even receive grants from the federal government, if they or any subcontractor or vendor trains or or even engages their own workforce in what is broadly and and very vaguely defined as divisive concepts, common subject matter like systemic racism and bias. Uh, It can include an acknowledgement of this country's history of enslavement. It can include past and current forms of sex and gender discrimination and entire academic disciplines such as critical race theory. That is technically what this order jeopardizes. What it really does, I think what's really at stake here is that it jeopardizes truth and it jeopardizes the very difficult and painstaking work that has been done by so many of us to get to a place where we can begin to confront the vast and deep harms of racism and sexism by addressing them head on, by naming them, by speaking of them. And as an organization whose central tools are litigation and advocacy and public education and research, we quite literally traffic in fact. And we are intentional about always providing historical context. We're unabashed about identifying and naming racism. And it's through that truth telling that we were able to dismantle state-sponsored apartheid in Brown versus Board of Ed. Uh, we were able to expose housing discrimination in Shelley versus Kramer. And now we're able to expose issues like racial inequity and access to water as we sue middle American cities. We can tell the story of the evolution of policing from slave patrols to white citizen councils to the oppressive policing systems we see today. But we can only do that by truth telling. So when we saw this effort by the federal government to codify a restriction on free speech to target viewpoints, we were compelled to act. And, and we were very proud to
0: bring a legal challenge to the executive order. We were just talking before we started. When this order first came down, I had occasion to talk to several people and you know, got on the phone with you. And we were both horrified, you know, about <laughs> what this order portended. But it was sort of a slow you know kind of recognition for for some reason um, it wasn't easy to to get people appropriately alarmed and I'm just wondering uh, now that you're working directly with two plaintiffs, what is it that people sort of you know didn't see or perhaps didn't anticipate the way this order would impact organizations like the urban League or you know, the Fair Housing Alliance, what is it that people weren't seeing or anticipating?
2: Yeah, that's such an excellent question, Kim. I think both of us were completely befuddled and baffled when uh, we we saw the lack of urgency from so many who I know deeply care about racial inequity and care about these issues. I think it was a combination of matters and I'm delighted that we were able to not only have the African-American Policy Forum understand the severity of this order immediately But we also had immediate support from the National Urban League and the National Fair Housing Alliance. And I know Lisa Rice is here tonight, which is wonderful. And they were willing to step up boldly and and fearlessly to challenge this executive order. Understandably, many entities with federal funding or federal contracts were a little cowed, were chilled, were scared about what the impact might be on them directly. But these two institutions have stood tall and stood firm and the Legal Defense Fund is absolutely honored to represent them. But honestly, when this executive order came out, it was almost like a tree falling in the forest and not making a sound because it seemed as if nobody heard it. Uh, you know, there were some rumblings about how it might affect diversity and equity and inclusion trainers who work for the government. But you know, there were all these musings about if you just didn't mention critical race theory or you, know, you just didn't touch on certain subjects that you would be in the clear. You know, there was a bit of a shrug of the shoulder initially, but I think it has come to be appreciated as the authoritarian attack that it is, as the, the white supremacist uh, manifesto that it is. And I'm glad that our community has finally recognized what its impact might be. We now need to make sure that the understanding about the continued urgency to reverse the damage that it already has done and that it continues to do is something that remains forefront in our minds even as we anticipate a change in administration.
0: Yeah, yeah. I remember you know, reading and, and hearing about how people were looking at their presentations and deleting slides, right? As, as yeah. though that was gonna be you know, enough. And I, I just was astonished that even the deletion of the slide as the uh, cure for the problem uh, wasn't so much of a, a red light. I mean, we are moving into territory that we've come out of in the past, which I want to get to shortly. But Lisa, let, let me come to you. And I'm, I'm so happy you're able to, to join us as well. I can say that from uh, those who don't necessarily understand the impact of the order, on one hand, I don't think people have a sense of how far the reach of government funding actually goes and what organizations uh, do with, with that support. And so for you, a torchbearer for fair housing, I think it might be shocking to people how much of an obstacle this order has been and can be to the work of fair housing advocacy. So I wonder if you could give us a sense of what your organization does and and how your work is impacted by Trump's attempt to take away, you know, some of the conceptual tools that you need to advocate for fair and equitable housing.
3: So the National Fair Housing Alliance, our job is really simple, but it's it's hard. Um, Our job is to eliminate all forms of housing discrimination and to create fair and open markets. And we do that by conducting investigations into discrimination uh, complaints. Uh, We do that by developing policies to create fair access to housing and lending opportunities. Uh, We conduct educational and training programs, not just for victims of discrimination, but for governmental entities, uh, regulators who are providing oversight over lenders. Uh, And we do many other things as well. And so what we've known um, for a while, Kimberly, and and I must say that the advent of the COVID-19 pandemic and the ensuing economic crisis has really brought this to the fore, is uh, we're seeing all too clearly that systemic racism really drives harmful and inequitable outcomes. It's even driving biases in the technologies that we're using in the housing, lending, and health space. Racism, we know, got us into this mess, and it will only be with anti-racism efforts um, that we get out of this mess. But this yeah. order literally says that I am restricted, our agency is restricted whenever we're utilizing federal funds from talking about the racism that brought us to a place where, for example, the Black-white home ownership gap is back to where it was in 1890. So I can say that a gap exists but I'm restricted from telling the truth about why the gap exists. I can say that residential segregation exists, but I'm restricted from telling the truth about why we are segregated. So this order hinders us from doing our work effectively because we know that it was race, uh, racism, again, that got us into this place, and we need race-based solutions in order to expand fair housing and fair credit opportunities. But if I can't tell the truth about why we're in the shape that we're in, then we cannot effectively advocate for the policies that we need to eliminate housing and lending discrimination. Um, And I want to just interject one thing, because we're seeing something really phenomenal happening. And that is, as we have actually been talking about the truth about why we're seeing racial disparities related to the COVID crisis, Um, related to uh, housing instability as we've been telling the truth about why these racial inequities exist we have been gaining a lot of support from areas that we would not have thought we would gain support so for example the lending and insurance industries have really stepped up to support fair housing and fair lending in ways that they never had done before because of this truth-telling that Janae has been talking about. So for example, just last month, Citigroup and the Business Roundtable came out in support of fair housing, disparate impact. And in fact, Citigroup released a report that said, if we eliminate structural racism just against black people alone, Kimberly, over the next five years, we will add $5 trillion to the United States GDP. So they're recognizing that not only is addressing and eliminating structural racism the right thing to do and the moral thing to do, it's the economically sound thing to do.
0: Thank you so much for that, Lisa. It makes it so plain what the consequences are. And I was wondering your quick thought about this. So if we can, which which we have to acknowledge that there is housing segregation, if we can acknowledge that there are disparities in home ownership or disparities in uh, access to financial tools, but we can't say why that is. What inferences then are supported from not being able to say the why? I mean, where does that where does that take the explanatory narrative about why we have this problem of housing segregation and lack of home ownership and so forth and so on?
3: Okay. So what that does is it leaves us with blaming the victim. It leaves us with blaming uh, the home owner who has been foreclosed on. It leaves us with blaming the consumer who was denied for the credit, right? So if you can't tell the truth about why people are living in credit deserts or why they are living in health deserts, why there's residential segregation, then the only thing you're left with is saying, well, it is the person's fault, it's the individual's fault because it has nothing to do with anything that is systemic or structural.
0: And, and this, is, this is so much the uh, traveling of colorblindness into the world of policymaking, the civil society. If we can't talk about how race contributes to help construct, uh, set in motion, actually required uh, so many of the racial disparities that we have, it just allows people to think that the status quo is normal, uh, natural can't be interrupted without doing damage to those who feel as though they have a right to the status quo as it is, which seems very much, you know, what President Trump is endorsing. They also say, and and Rachel, I want to, to come to you on that. So he said that ideas such as implicit bias that are fashionable in the academy have no place in programs and activities supported by federal taxpayer dollars. Now that claim can only resonate with people who have no idea whatsoever about the work that implicit bias is trying to do. So can you give us an example of what kinds of problems implicit bias sheds light on that then we cannot talk about effectively if this order actually stays as part of federal
4: policy?
5: Thanks so much, Kim, and thanks so much to Janae and Lisa and others who really have taken the mantle of leadership on this. Because I think when the order first came out, a number of us who are doing work in this context, because of the sense of urgency about trying to address the problems that implicit bias undergirds, I think we did want to try and just put our heads down and do the work. And so, just really want to thank Janae and other and you, Kim, and and others who really stepped up because you you pave the path for the rest of us. And so just to talk about what implicit bias even means, because to your point Kim, anyone who's trying to say federal dollars shouldn't be spent to try and combat it must not understand it because what it means is the way our brains work, we ha- we're at risk, we're vulnerable of without realizing it, having stereotypes or attitudes attributed to the different groups that have been constructed in this country. And those are contrary to our conscious values. 940,000 children were studied over a seven-year period who appeared in emergency rooms. And the question was whether children who were appearing to get appendectomies would be given different pain medication based upon their race. And what the researchers found was that white children were three times more likely to get the appropriate pain medication for their appendicitis regardless of whether they had access to insurance or regardless of any other factor. There was no other explanation but race. So what that leaves us with is either the conclusion that all of those doctors explicitly didn't want to treat children or the possibility that some large percentage of those doctors wanted to treat the children fairly, but they didn't because their unconscious set of stereotypes linked to the history, this history that people have referred to, these horrible, again, historical legacies of slavery that suggested that people experienced pain differently based upon race. So that's the you know, kind of horrible irony of this story is the pain people experience historically is still existing in the cultural memory of doctors. And so that's what this work is trying to do. Essentially, in thinking about implicit biases, it only works if people genuinely want to be egalitarian, but these historical memories still linger, and so they're not. And so groups are invited in finally, you know, organizers have worked to have groups invited in to do this training to work with healthcare practitioners and judges and others who want to be fair, but are finding themselves again engaging in decisions that are contrary to this goal of fairness. And this work is trying to create the guardrails that will essentially help us align our behavior with our values. There's so much research showing so many disparities in context where there is literally no other explanation except for race. And the judges are ready to accept that and the doctors are and the healthcare providers are and they want the training to try and change this. We need to understand how our brains work and we need to understand as everyone has described, the history that leaves us to the point where these stereotypes exist And then there's potential for change and that's exciting. But with the chilling effect and the worry about losing federal dollars that the executive order created, there were lots of groups that were beginning to shut this down because they were afraid of not being able to provide any healthcare at all. So it created this impossible conundrum.
0: And I I just wanna pause on that last point. Um, Number one, because the federal government speaks with a big budget, right? And so its ability to overdetermine the desires of institutions to do the right thing is profound, right? You have to choose between what we do want to serve, and this order is precluding us from being able to serve and also serve in a racial egalitarian way. So there's a lot at stake here. And the ultimate irony, it seems to be, at least with respect to some of these concepts, is Trump's order seems to suggest that to say that there's racial bias, to say that there's a problem um, is to call people bad or inherently uh, racist. Now there's debates about that for sure, but the whole point of implicit bias is to say some of the way that our culture shapes how we understand people and groups contributes to disparate treatment. So it's bizarre to try to eliminate the capacity of institutions to talk about implicit bias by making the argument that it basically hurts the feelings of people uh, when they're told that they are doing things potentially in a racially biased way. So Laura, let me come to you uh, because oddly enough, although these are many different ideas sort of traveling together, uh, they've all been packed into one car called critical race theory. And I know a lot of people have heard critical race theory, but they don't have a clue about what critical race theory is. And when they hear about critical race theory, um, they're as likely to hear about it through a stereotype as they are to read any of your work, my work, Chuck's work, anybody who writes uh, under that rubric. So I'm going to Uh, actually ask you to indulge me for a minute because I'm going to do a little speed dating version of getting to know CRT. And I'm going to start with the stereotypes that we heard. So I'm going to ask you to give me, you know, your honest response uh, to the questions I'm going to ask. So this is what I've heard about CRT. So OMB director uh, Russell Vought said that diversity training uh, in government is Uh, something that is divisive, anti-American propaganda. So is critical race theory anti-American?
6: It's it's shocking um, because we were taught, I think, that to criticize our government, to criticize our laws and our Constitution is the quintessentially American thing to do. What is the First Amendment about? Um, one other quick thing I want to just say about that OMB memo is it came out the same week that the Atlantic came ar- article came out, where Trump was quoted as saying that veterans and service members were losers and suckers. And so I think part of it was it was an attempt to change the conversation.
0: So, uh, not necessarily or not even remotely un American, if one considers un American as a part of a history of, of critique. Okay, so the White House press secretary said that President Trump believes that all men and women are created equal and he will stand against anti-American philosophies that promote racial division. So does CRT really promote racial division?
6: It's very interesting how talking about race and racism gets translated into promoting division. Um, the idea that that is being propagated here is that by saying that there is racism, we're calling out white men and we're making them feel bad. And that's basically just a, a page out of the reverse discrimination playbook.
0: All right. So while we're on the page out of old playbooks, let's talk about Tucker Carlson, who said, in a word, critical race theory is racism. What say you?
6: I think he he fundamentally, um, not surprisingly, I disagree. Um, but But really what critical race theory is all about is saying racism in the United States is historically rooted and it's ubiquitous and it's It's constant and it's structural it's systemic right and uh, again I think that there's such a misunderstanding of what it is that we're trying to talk about in critical race theory.
0: So so let's get to the core of it, because this is the one that we've heard a lot. People don't like something. They respond negatively to something. And they say, if you don't like that, then you won't like critical race theory, because this is applied critical race theory. I remember all the way back, this is many years ago, when the OJ Simpson acquittal happened, And a colleague, a law professor wrote, if you are upset about the acquittal of O.J. Simpson, then let me tell you the pointy-headed intellectuals behind this. It's these critical race theorists. And just recently, uh, we heard on Fox that starting on campus and then leaking into unconscious bias training at work, culminating in Uh, rioters who use CRT to justify violence. CRT is the reason why there was violence in the George Floyd protests. So um, tell us about that and tell us what then is CRT?
6: It's such an upside down world, right? Because it's not the fact that a man was, was murdered by the police that is Outraging people. It is somehow these leftist in higher education. Uh, again, I think I think the three things that I would really just emphasize are the idea that critical race theory looks at race from a structural position and how wonderful it was over the summer to see people out in the streets talking about systemic racism and white supremacy, right? Um, The second part of that is critically looking at law reforms, such as the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And part of what we've been saying in critical race theory is those were important milestones, but they didn't. They didn't solve the problem of racism, and this kind of goes back to what Rachel was talking about in the context of the healthcare system, what Lisa was talking about in the context of fair housing, what we see in the criminal justice system. All of those places are places where the law changing has not really moved the needle on racial inequality.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's it's so fascinating as you were saying, uh, critical theory. Uh, grows out of an embracing of the idea of law being a tool for racial transformation, but an incomplete one and one that also has functioned historically to reinforce racism. It's a bit bizarre. Um, So speaking of bizarre, um, I'm gonna go to uh, Chuck who is our OG and that means he's been around and there's nothing new under the sun including some of the bizarre dimensions of some institutions embrace of this executive order. So Chuck, I am thinking particularly about what your reaction was when a former employer of yours issued the mandate that bans comments like systemic racism exists here. Now of the many ironies that moment produced. One is that it's an institution that housed some of the most important uh, breakthroughs. Uh, Some of the work in in implicit bias is traced to this institution. Some of the work in stereotype threat, racial biases in uh, artificial intelligence. I mean, it's in the middle of Silicon Valley. And of course, Some of the work on critical race theory, which you did as a part of that institution also came out of it. And this is not to mention the fact that the last time you were engaged in a fight, so to speak, it was over the fact that some of your colleagues were willing to allow all kinds of racist speech to happen on campus. But now when a ban comes against anti-racist ideas There seems to be like a readiness to say, Oh, yeah, here, (laughs) we're good with that. So, what in the world um, is happening? What's the lesson that we need to learn from this debacle?
7: In some way, I I was shocked by Stanford's uh, response, but not surprised by it. And this is because I think one of the things that's important to know about the danger of what's going on and what's happening here is that it's not even though it's important, all these things that we've pointed out so far in terms of the actual application of what people are able to do in their various agencies and the importance of being able to tell truths in these, that we also see this as part of a a larger ideological thing that Trump, and not just Trump, but uh, people on these campuses, the Federalist Society have been pushing for long, and you've mentioned about how it's even part of the discourse in the court. When Trump, you know, the opening that you had here, where he starts out with, you know, this famous quote from King's I Have a Dream speech, you know, content of our character, to characterize critical race theory, the 1619 Project, Howard Zinn, uh, all of these people as the anti American racist, right? that we we are the people who are basically for black supremacy anti white all of these kinds of things and it's so that in addition to denying the truth of these stories one has to ask why is there a char- need to characterize these movements these individuals as terrorist as anti american and i think it's important to see that because you know you also at, in your intro immediately talked about these codes, the slave codes that banned assembly, that banned speech, that banned teaching blacks to read. All of these things were about the understanding that freedom struggles, that these kinds of speech and these individuals who were radical black speakers were essential and central to freedom struggles, right? So it's not surprising if we look back that we see that every time we get these attempts to suppress radical black speech, it's always at a time where we've made advances, you know, so that King's letter from Birmingham jail happens and the suppression of King's most radical speech and even his death happens just at the time where people are speaking that way. You know all the way back to Nat Turner, you know, you see the growth of these kinds of laws just at the time when they're individuals. So I think that this need to portray critical race theorists is not just to keep people from teaching what we have, but is to characterize these people who've been central in helping us understand what white supremacy is about as as terrorists, as people who are anti-American, and that it not only silences the particular people who are putting on these projects, but it's an attempt to silence us. So we know that you know, immediately after this executive order went out, it wasn't just the executive order itself, but it was the way that Trump presented this order, which was a call out to his people to suppress speech. And Alicia Garza appeared on the list of a terrorist, Trump supporter as a person who would be attacked and this happened. FBI revealed this immediately after Trump had sent out this call. So this is another form of silencing. We're silenced, you know. Um, many of us, after this, also took our contact information's off of the websites, university websites, where we could easily be identified, you know, in terms of our emails, our phone numbers, where we live, because we understood that this was not just about the formal effect of. Executive order, but another kind of silencing that always happens in McCarthy uh, teams that you're talking about. So it's p- particular silencing of calling out troops to physically threaten these people, just as happened all the way back to lynching. You know, if someone was outspoken, then you called out the troops to silence them. And in addition to that, a, an attempt at least to separate us from our liberal colleagues, right, from colleagues who would say, well, you know, we better not hang out and support these people so much because we're gonna lose our funding. Early on, when I was at Stanford, we engaged in this fight to try to say that these campuses weren't gonna be really open to black and brown and other people of color if they were subjected to racist speech. And the response was, oh, no, no, we have to allow all this kind of speech. And then this thing comes along, which says, that even to speak of structural racism, you know, not to attack somebody as white, but to speak about structural racism isn't gonna be allowed. And immediately the university bows to that. And I think that uh, you know, I called it to the Dean of the Law School's attention right away. I said, look, everything that I ever wrote while I was at Stanford, all of the stuff that was published by the Stanford Law Review that I wrote would be banned under this order. I'm wondering why I haven't seen an immediate response by other people in the university. Now, there was a response after that, you know, but uh, it's really important for us to see this as not just a chilling of the speech in terms of the particular things that the order is going to defund, but it's really aimed at a much larger thing. And it's also doing something that, as you said, frames any talking about racism as anti-white, which also is the message that, that Trump wants to send out to his supporters.
0: Which is, which is very much a zero-sum framing uh, around racial justice that we've seen over and over again. And let's just say some of our, you know, civil libertarian colleagues will, will tell us that, you know, it's just a, a conflict between racist speech and anti-racist speech and the constitution doesn't take a position much of your work, of course, says the Constitution does take a position.
7: It's called the 14th Amendment. <laughs> That's what the 14th Amendment is about. We're supposed to be on the side of anti-racism, right? That anti-racist speech is, in fact, the most American speech, but we have to counter that to you know, a president who's been arguing for make America great again, meaning make America white again. And so this is the perfect juxtaposition of an approach that says, no, uh, Americanism, real Americanism is not just about dissent, but it is about anti-racism that one of the foundational sicknesses of our constitutional system was slavery. And the 14th Amendment was intended to overcome that, but all of critical race theory has been about how we haven't done that, that the 14th Amendment should place an affirmative duty on us to move from a position of slavery to a position of where you've destroyed structural and ideological racism.
0: That is the fundamental sort of thing that they're trying to move off the table, right? That there is work that is required to be done and we have to have the concepts to be able to articulate what that work is. But what what this is basically doing is trying to remove the narrative that we need to repair our society. If you can't say it's broken, You can't advocate for a fixing. Let me bring Carol in just for a moment on this because it's a battle over history, right? It's... it's not just a matter of banning certain words and concepts, it's a battle over what narrative we tell. So many people seem to have lost their minds over Nicole Hannah-Jones' 1619 project. And that seemed to be the thing that prompted Trump's 1776 narrative. And so, you know, so much of this outrage and this need to, you know, come back stronger with more glorification of the founding fathers, it reminded me of Thurgood Marshall during the bicentennial, he wrote a speech that prompted people to call for him to be impeached and removed from the Supreme Court. What did he say? He said that the Constitution wasn't everything people are cracking it up to be. It insulated slavery. It took a bloody civil war to even begin to turn the corner and put us on the right path. And for saying this truth, People were saying he was not qualified to be on the Supreme Court. If he said it today, he might have actually been impeached. It's a very real possibility. So you're a historian. Tell us what's really going on in the battle around narrative. A lot of people are gonna say, well, it's just a battle about a story that gets told. It's not really materially significant. But of course you say it is
4: materially significant. So help us understand how. One is that it deals with a a kind of origin story. And so if you have an origin story and it's part of a way that you create a sense of, of citizenship, a sense of belonging to this broader nation. And so if you have this narrative story, it's like when I was teaching American history and you would get what I would call black in the box. And so that Black people just weren't there. They weren't there at the founding when this great nation was put together. They weren't there fighting for independence. But, oh, they popped up and there was slavery. But Lincoln freed the slaves. Notice Lincoln did the work. Black people disappear again, you know, in this narrative. And you begin to think about what your textbooks look like. You begin to think about what your public history spaces look like, like your museums. You get Black people again coming in during Martin Luther King, where Rosa sat down, Martin stood up, he had a dream, and we all overcame. That becomes it. And and so you get this narrative where Black people are objects. They're not the subjects of their own struggles. They don't have agency. And so this is why you then get the narrative of Black pathology, and you get the narrative of we gave you. We gave you. We gave you freedom, we gave you Christianity, we gave you housing loans, we gave you welfare, we gave you. So when you have really bad historical narratives, you're able to justify really bad policies in housing, in healthcare, in education, in the criminal justice system based on those false narratives. Now, if you have a narrative, A history that talks about the ways, and this is evidence-based, the ways that Black folks fought for their freedom, the ways that they conceptualized their freedom, the way that they conceptualized their family and nation and community, the way that they created their culture and their strengths, then all of a sudden the narratives of Black pathology begin to crumble. And this is what made the 1619 Project so threatening, because one, you had the backing of the New York Times behind it, and you had Nicole Hannah-Jones win a Pulitzer Prize for it. So it didn't go quietly into the night, but instead it exploded because people were hungry for this knowledge. And that was the threat. And so you come up then with this 1776, but it means you're not going to tell the truth about 1776, which is that as the British are coming south, they're coming to South Carolina and Georgia, and George Washington is like, look, you're going to have to put some weapons in the hands of your enslaved people because you don't have enough white folks to fight. And South Carolina said, we would rather surrender to the British And it took black folks coming in to help save the revolution. But that's a story that won't get told in this 1776 sanitized version of a narrative.
0: We wanted to move into roundtable now um, for some quick hits from everyone. And I think perhaps the most significant thing uh, right now is to assess what this moment means and what we need to do. So obviously, um, we know that we want to push for rescinding the order, but more needs to happen. And I wanted to get folks a sense of what that more needs to be. And I, I want to come back to you, uh, Janae, because you know obviously there's a there's a lot of damage that needs to be accounted for. But what more do you think this moment portends? What more should we be asking
2: for? That's such an excellent question because uh, so many people seem to be uh complacent about the idea that this incoming administration will rescind the order and of course we expect that they will and if they don't we will demand that they do but that's really just stopping the harm that has already been in progress that is in no way restoring what we've lost in the interim and it is not an antidote to the invitation to step away from the very important work of centering race and gender discrimination in public discourse. It doesn't mandate that those institutions that have dropped those trainings or have decided they no longer will conduct those trainings now reinstate them. It only removes a penalty if they do. So that is not undoing the harm or undoing the damage. You are not unscrambling the egg, you are not unringing that bell until you make it affirmative. And so I would demand that we seek an executive order that is an antidote to what this executive order has done. I would demand that we try to resurrect the interest in HR 40, which is the demand to create a commission to study reparations and understand the true history of enslavement and Black subjugation. Those are the only ways in which we will make up for the lost time, that we will undo the the message that this information is not important, that it is not true, and that it has no place in the federal workplace or in our society more broadly. So we need not only to rescind it, but we need something that will actually take us further down the road toward racial reckoning.
0: It reminds me very much of of what the reaction was to Um, the firefighters case, right? Because this was a moment in which it was important to be able to say non-discrimination requires affirmative efforts. It requires removing barriers and obstacles. And that led to the assumption that even creating the responsibility on behalf of employers to look at their, look at how they do their business, look at the disparate impact and actually create more fair and equitable employment uh, practices, suddenly that becomes reverse discrimination. That, suddenly that becomes discrimination. So, when you, when you have this in the backdrop, the kind of work that this order is doing is extending even that, right? So, much of what we have to do is basically say, you know, not only is, is it important that we put responsibilities on employers to be equitable, that may mean you have to change how you do things and, and, and no one has a right to an unfair employment practice. You know, you can't argue about your diminished overrepresentation when you didn't have a right to unfair employment practices as it is. So much of that is frontline work that you're doing at LDF. Janae, we're we're so we're so proud to be in partnership with you. Um, I want to go to the other sort of territory, Uh, Laura. um, We live in an institution where, at least for the time being, the work we do is institutionalized. And my sense is that that institutionalization is, is really one of the reasons why the academy is an area that this Trumpism is trying to get to. So, what do you think needs to happen given our own you know, experience of being institutionalized at UCLA.
6: Yeah, it's, it's, it's fantastic that we have now critical race studies at UCLA has been around for 20 years, and that has allowed us to really protect each other, right, those of us on the faculty and grow our students. Um, but, you know, most universities, most law schools, most critical race study scholars don't have that kind of a institutionalized uh, scaffold, right? They're working by themselves, they're not tenured, they're not hired. And so I think I think it makes our, our national efforts all the more critical to really provide some support for, for those scholars. I think coming back to what Carol and Chuck were both saying is, is thinking more about how higher education can connect with K through 12 educators. The governor in California just vetoed an ethnic studies uh, requirement in high school. Um, so, you know, there's just a number of things that I think we have to do to kind of make sure that that history, the history of the Constitution, the 1619 Project, all of that just gets really institutionalized as we come back in this new administration, because it's, it, it, the fight is not going to go away.
0: And let's just point out that the governor that did that is, you know, supposedly on the grand things on our side. So a lot of the work that has to be done is internal work. Um, Lisa, so much of, of the work in housing, you know, as you pointed out, involves institutions and structures that reproduce the exclusions of the past. So as you think now moving forward beyond this order, what are the ideas and what are the institutional features of doing fair housing that now we need to see established and and reinforced more than ever before that's
3: a great question um so let me preface my answer by um stating something that i think we kind of know intuitively but until we verbalize it we don't i think really fully understand and grasp the magnitude of the situation that we're facing today. So almost every single law and policy put in place by the federal government and actually if you go back to the pre the uh, colonial period in America most of those laws put in place by the British government by Amsterdam by you know Spain France etc were race based policies. There were race-based laws that dictated where people of color could live, uh, how long people of color could own property, could amass wealth. Uh, when a person of color died, what happened to their wealth? In many cases, their wealth was seized by the state and redistributed to their white neighbors. So the, all of those laws and policies were race-based, and they created systems that are still in place today. They created the dual credit market that is still in place today. They created residential segregation that is still in place today, right? And so what happened when we passed uh, the civil rights laws, the civil rights laws said that when a lender or a housing provider is making a decision, they can't take your race or your gender into consideration, but they left those structures, those, those unequitable structures in place. So we passed the Fair Housing Act, but we left residential segregation in place. We passed the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, but we left the dual credit market in place. They're still performing their functions today, driving disparate outcomes and inequality. So we have to dismantle those structures and build new systems that are fair and equitable. That is a huge amount of work and it will take a huge amount of resources. But those are the kinds of changes that we are pushing for and demanding that the Biden-Harris administration start. So we're telling them you've got to establish an office of racial equity within the White House. You have to establish a President's Fair Housing Council that is headed by the Vice President of the United States. You have got to not only implement the 2015 Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing Rule that was put in place under the Obama administration, but you have to fully fund it and you have to enforce it. Now, those are just a few of the things that we are pushing for, but that's the kind of, you know some people might call it radical. I don't call it, it's not really that radical, (laughs) it's just, fixing the problems that our racism caused.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you brought in the, the Biden administration. And so some part of what we want to talk about is what should Biden do now? So one, the, the office that you mentioned, absolutely vital, absolutely critical, uh, assessing the damage that was done, absolutely uh, critical, creating a new baseline for what equity looks like in practice a new one. And I'm wondering, what are the other things and how do we need to mobilize to hold this administration that many advocates and and many stakeholders in racial justice communities uh, put in office? So what more needs to be done? Uh, Rachel, what's your sense about what should we be campaigning uh, to realize out of this devastating moment?
5: I would just echo what Lisa and Carol and others have said. The underlying sort of structural segregation is precisely why implicit biases are so prevalent because the people not living next to each other and the sort of massive exponential transfer of wealth that the federal government basically handed to white people in the post-World War II era is what what fuels how we live now. And so, again, telling that story, as Carol said, having the the origin story of the country, both going way back and also the very near origin story of how wealth disparities were created. And again, why we live where we do, that leads to, again, all these underlying harms. So the structural issues are absolutely the most critically important because there really was this racial agency that white people got to create white communities very recently that if not dismantled, all this other work is just you know, sort of an impossible roll the small pebble up the hill task. At the same time, I think a lot of the work that those of us who are white haven't done, we have to do. So we have to take our accountability and start to actually make affirmative efforts to be engaged in meaningful ways in all these efforts to, you know, to be anti-racist, as we say we want to be. We have to actually do that and sort of just join and kind of be part of the movement forward as opposed to engaging in such a- aggressive efforts to maintain whiteness as has been done historically. And so I think the federal government dismantling the structural underpinnings of segregation is crucial. And then on the individual level, individual decisions do matter because individuals, you know, teachers have so much power over every children's lives. So it has to be this combination of sort of the structural work, and because people live lives individually, moment to moment, that individual work has to happen too.
0: Yeah, yeah.
5: You know, it's so fascinating how quickly
0: historic and structured inequalities just pass into the world as uh, just their features. For, For a long time, we did structural racism training, and we would spend five days with people going all the way back, you know to so-called discovery talking about theft of land and theft of labor and, and and theft of of country as as necessary preconditions and then we went all the way up to this mid-20th century what happened with uh, the gi bill and what happened with the expansion of neighborhoods suburbs and and doing so on a racially discriminatory basis that the federal government underwrote and people would seem to get it and they'd understand it and they'd go along with it and then someone would always say but my father grandfather great-grandfather came here with nothing and look at what he's been able to do how come you know x or y couldn't do it and that is once again a recognition of how much work has to be done to make people aware of the ground that they stand on right the the violence and the discrimination and the racism that has shaped who gets what in society. Um, And this order effectively tries to tell us that we can't talk about those things because that is racist. And I have to say, our first encounter was when we had an inequality race video that millions of people have seen. And it was shown in, in Rico County, Virginia. And one parent said, this is a white guilt video. And before we knew it, the video was banned. This is a piece of this, not only do I not wanna know it, not only do I not want you to tell it to me, I'm gonna say that I'm injured when you do tell it to me. So, you know, we're in a deeper struggle now about what narratives we can tell and what are the conditions under which we can tell it but we know there's no choice not to tell it. That's the only way that the work that we need to do moves forward. Um, Carol, let, let, let me come to you as the historian because uh, you, you've given us a sense about how we've been here before. And every time we've come to this moment, we had it after the end of, of the Civil War reconstruction came and went. Uh, we had it after the end of World War One. the end of World War II. We had it in the sixties and now again, Every time there's an awakening, there is repression, there's a crushing of it. What do we learn from the repetitious dimension of it? Like this is our groundhog day. How do we wake up in a different day? What can we use from the repetitiousness of it to write a different
4: narrative this time? One of the reasons I actually wrote White Rage was because of this, it was to give us an evidence-based way to engage in this conversation. And so not just this kind of floaty rhetoric, well, black folks did and white folks, no, let's look at the evidence because what we're seeing is that black folks voted and the response to black people voting was massive disfranchisement, both through policy and through violence. Black folks wanted schools, they wanted education. Because, you know, you get these narratives of Black pathology. Well, you know, if Black people really cared about schools the way other people do, then their, kid, their schools would be fine. Well, when we understand how the school systems were set up and how hard Black people were fighting for those quality schools, thank you, Janae, so much, <laughs> fighting for quality schools. So part of what we have to do is a deep, deep education. And this is why the backlash against higher education from this regime and its enablers. This is why they went buck wild crazy when the 1619 project was going to be used in some K through 12 schools. If children begin to understand the narrative of this nation, understand that most Americans don't have a a, a bachelor's degree What they get is through K through 12. And so when we're thinking about what this incoming administration must do, one is to have a real full investment in public education, quality public education, and provide the resources so that children, regardless of zip code, are getting the kinds of of support that they need and the kinds of textbooks that are about truth-telling, that are evidence-based, not mythology-based. That's what's going to be absolutely essential. Because right now what's happening, what creates Groundhog Day is the myth of the zero-sum game. It's that the only way that Black folks can get will be at white folks' expense. You gotta break the myth of the zero-sum game. Once that happens, then we're having a very different kind of conversation.
0: So, Chuck, I'm going to come to you to build on uh, what Carol just shared. What's your sense about what the Biden administration needs to be pushed to do? Because we know that it really is, you know, about mobilizing our allies and and our stakeholders, even in friendly uh, moments. I mean, the Johnson administration did great stuff, but they were pushed to do it. So what's your sense about what we need to be focused on? When we say eyes on the prize, how should we be staring at it? and What do we need to do? Well,
7: I I think um, the short answer is that we always need to demand results. If, If there are gaps, if there are unequal conditions, we need to demand that those conditions change. And one of the things that we see about this backlash is that every time there have been a demand, you know, that that really the, the fact that in this Black Lives Matter moment, the use even of the term structural racism and white supremacy moved from the academy out into the streets and people were actually saying this and every time there's been that kind of a time, if you think about the Johnson administration we and we made those demands, that happened because we had Watts and Detroit and Newark and you know, people were burning things down and saying, no, what we want is a change in conditions. And the, the attacks on the black power movement, you mentioned in your, uh, in your intro, every time, you know, even when we look at the, the legislation that, that shut people up, that COINTELPRO, all these things, these were attacks on black people and other people of color who are asking for change in conditions. And one of the reasons that critical race theory becomes attacked is that at the center of critical race theory has always been the demand that law, that equality has to be a change in conditions not just on the face of the law. And that's the place, you know, that's the center of why critical race theory gets attacked is is that for that change. So I think across the board, we need to to say that this is exactly what we were asking for with affirmative action, that affirmative action is a demand, not that you pass the kinds of laws that Lisa was talking about, that call for uh, individuals not to discriminate, but that you attack the conditions in education, in housing, in employment, all of those things have been rolled back over the years and exactly under this rubric of you can't talk about race, led by the court, you know, said that racial classifications are strictly scrutinized because they damage white people. Instead of saying that the thing we need to be looking at is racism and that this is fundamentally what is the sickness in our, our democracy. Right, that white people, even working class and poor white people are convinced by this rhetoric to um, sacrifice, you know, this is what we've seen in the COVID epidemic, that we'll follow behind this guy that's telling us not to leave masks, all this kind of stuff that's doing damage to ourselves because of this beginning in an ideology that put essentially property and capitalism over humanity and justified that by taking certain human beings and saying they were less equal and not realizing that this was something that capitalism was doing to everybody, putting property over humanity.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much, Chuck. And and Janae, just for one final quick hit, what do people need to know about the lawsuit? What is it that you uh, want people to become aware of and involved in, how can we support? Thank you for asking
2: that question. We're we're pushing forward. If if you are one of the people in the chat or uh, one of the people who responded to the survey that AAPF has put out and you've had an experience and would like to contribute your story, there may be an opportunity for you to do that. And uh, please reach out and contact us for that opportunity. Uh, We wanna make sure that the court understands the full breadth of the impact of this executive order and the chilling effect that it has and the harm that it has already done. So we appreciate your stories and appreciate your support.
0: Thank you so much, Janae. So I want to conclude with what I hope have been the answers to what you all have just heard. So my hunch is that maybe some of you came into this conversation questioning, well, what does this really have to do with me? I don't work in the government. I don't get a grant. That's not me. Well, hopefully you know now that Trump's attack on social justice is an attack on everyone who exercised their constitutional right to peacefully protest racial injustice this year. Every person who was overcome with grief after watching eight minutes and 46 seconds of George Floyd's death. Every person who's been awakened to the nightmare of structural racism by the racially disproportionate death toll of COVID, every person who has been prompted to rethink American history beginning with slavery that built the wealth of this nation, every person who's witnessed the undeniable patterns of implicit bias by well-meaning colleagues who undervalue, overtalk, or mansplain them, every person who endeavors to uncover embedded inequalities across our many institutions in order to interrupt them, every woman of color or any other employee who seeks to name multiple forms of disadvantage that impact them, and every military officer, executive, business owner who nurtures the competitive excellence that equitable diversity delivers. This order implicates you. So on that I wanna encourage everybody to get involved, everybody to learn more, everybody to push your colleagues to resist and insist that this order be rescinded. And of course, big thanks to our panelists, Janae Nelson, Chuck Lawrence, Carol Anderson, Lisa Rice, Rachel Gotzel, and Laura Gomez for helping us to respond to the aftermath of this historic order and the possibility of transformation. Intersectionality Matters is produced by Julia Sharp Levine. This episode was edited by Julia Sharp Levine and Rebecca Scheckman. Additional support was provided by the team at the African American Policy Forum. You can support us by leaving a review on iTunes following us on social media, or signing up for our Patreon page. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality
7: Matters. Louis Scarcella was the greatest homicide detective of his generation. I am the protector of these people. I am the guardian that they need. Derek Hamilton was the best jailhouse lawyer of his. And the lawyer was my girlfriend. It was all I had. What happens when a group of convicted felons take on the cop who put them away? We gotta attack Scarcella. Come and get me. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.